I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The scripture today is four places. It's Isaiah 40, 10 through 11, Isaiah 57, 15, Romans 8, 15, and Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. Thanks, Vicki. Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer City. Uh, And we're in week two of a series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We have come to the, the section right at the beginning, God the Father Almighty. Last week we talked about belief and faith and what that looks like, uh, and this week we're going to look a little bit more closely at God the Father Almighty. Uh, again, another programming note uh, for those of you uh, who, who may be new to Redeemer City or new to Christianity or even don't consider yourselves uh, Christians. Uh, we're, as we walk through the Apostles' Creed, it's an opportunity to, to learn what we believe, uh, why we believe it. So it'll, it'll be a lot of teaching a lot of uh, the, the, the word that's used often is doctrine, uh, but at the same time, a lot of scripture passages to talk through that stuff. So the list is quite long of references, and if you'd, if you'd like those, uh, you can ask me about that. I'm happy to, to give them to you. Uh, some of them are in the worship folder, uh, either on the insert that Vicki just read or 
uh, in the uh, in the call to worship, assurance of pardon, and so forth. But that's probably the way it's going to go each week as we walk through various teachings of the Bible and how this creed, written 1,700 years ago, okay, 1,700 years ago, uh, this thing was put together, and why we say what we say in uh, in 2017, uh, and 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 what it teaches us about Christianity as we go to share with our neighbors, uh, our coworkers, uh, and and uh, everyone in our community for that matter. To say, uh, I believe in God, what you may have noticed, and if you haven't, I'll, I'll point this out to you as we come to it throughout the rest of the, the series, but the creed really goes in three sections. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and so forth and so on. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and so on and so forth. I believe in Holy Spirit, right? Um, it's very intentional that way. Uh, to say I believe in is, and I mentioned this last week, very significant compared to say I believe that God is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe that Jesus Christ is his only son. I believe that the Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit or you know, however you want to say that. But we're saying I believe in. I believe in too. Meaning I'm going to stake my life. I'm going to put my trust in uh, these words. And to say I believe in God actually is surprisingly easy for many people. And why is that? Uh, I think the answer is, what God are you talking about? I believe in God. Yeah, easy to say. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor back in the, the 1700s in Massachusetts, was talking to one of his church members about revival. And the church member said, surely everyone believes in God already. And Edwards said, yes, but what kind of God do they believe in when I show them the God of the Bible? They say, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God who's more to my liking. Uh, and and I, I was struck by that because that is very much where our culture is, uh, not so different from the way culture has been for many, many years. Rather than believe in a God who says, this is who I am, uh, we like to believe in a God who's more to our liking. We didn't read from Isaiah 40, verse 9, but in Isaiah 40, verse 9, right before the, the words that Vicky read, he, uh, Isaiah says to his people, or to the people of God, behold your God. In other words, look. Let's stare at him. Let's look at him. And that's what we're going to attempt to do uh, this morning in uh, three ways. Uh, really in two, and then kind of bring them together in the third there. You'll see it on the outline uh, that's printed for you. The personal God. Why is he unique, the God of the Bible? How is he unlike other gods? And why is that so important? Why is that significant? Secondly, our tender father. He's both a personal God, but also a tender father. And what is radical about the ability to call God our father? How is it possible for that to happen? Bob alluded to this, and you can see it radiate off of Bob, which is part of the reason why so many people think Bob's weird. Because it's true. Because he really does get that this is his dad he's talking to. So he, so he talks to him and about him um, as if he's that. And the affection that his father has given to him, uh, he, he, he returns back to him. He talks about him in that way. But I want you to know that's radical. And we'll get to that uh, in just a minute. Uh, 
so radical, incredible, as, as Christianity is compared with uh, other views, other religions of the world. And then lastly, you have to bring those two things together. The, the, the doctrine of God the Father Almighty, saying that requires that he be both. And, and that's where we find our only hope. So those three things. First, the personal God. Uh, our church has a catechism. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you may have heard of it. If you haven't, you can find it on the internet. Uh, and it teaches that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. I'm just going to take this out because this thing is messing up on me. Uh, being infinite means he's not limited by time and space. He's, he's unlimited. He's beyond space. Uh, again, programming note, if you've been around the church for a long time or you consider yourself a Christian, a lot of what I'm going to say, you might think as I'm saying it, well, I already know that. Duh. Of course that's true. Uh, but I want you to listen and think in terms of how you would share this, how you would explain this, how you would talk about this with someone who is coming to faith or not yet of faith, right? Really want us to think this summer in terms of evangelism and a word that the church has used before, apologetics. It's, it's defending our faith. So understanding what we believe and why we believe it. So uh, stick with me as we, as we go through this. For God, there's no near, there's no far. Everything is equally near. Being eternal means he has no beginning, he, he has no end. Time doesn't really have a meaning for God like it does for us. He exists beyond time. Uh, there's no past, there's no future. Uh, Isaiah 57, 15, which is in uh, your worship folder, says he inhabits eternity. I, I don't know what that means. Uh, it sounds cool, uh, but I don't really understand it or what it means, but, but that's what the Bible says. He's unchangeable. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Unchangeable it means he's equally present. There's no before, there's no after for him. He wasn't at one point in some state and then changed, so he afterward was in a different state. Our confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, says he's without passions, and that's what they mean by that. He doesn't waffle back and forth between moods or uh, flavors of the month. But the Bible also speaks of his power. We can't limit God, so we can't think about him in ways that make him small. If we do, then we often fall into the trap of making him into our image rather than remembering we are made in his image. He says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him? In Isaiah chapter 40. Just, just sit with Isaiah 40 for the rest of the day, I would encourage you, or at some point today, read through it from start to finish uh, slowly. You'll be be blown away. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? In our call to worship, the psalmist says uh, in verse 5, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? Now, I mentioned Isaiah 40, and I just want to walk through some of it. Uh, it there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's not all printed for you in the worship folder. I apologize for that. Uh, the more I got into this, the more I realized, man, probably should have printed the whole, the whole chapter or at least a good portion of it. Um, but if you're taking notes or you have a pen there, just jot down some of these verse numbers and you can look at them later. Verses 10 and 11 are printed on your insert. And part of the reason for that is because they place side by side very beautifully the power of God with the tenderness of God. But the rest of the chapter has some great language to help us capture the, the godness of God, okay? These are illustrations in which he rules with his arm. 
okay, at the top of your insert. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. These are all different ways in which he rules with his arm, okay? So uh, I'm just going to walk through uh, some of these uh, briefly this morning. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who can do that? Have you ever been to the mountains? You ever stood on a, a, underneath the mountain? Ever felt small? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, not me, not you, I don't think. Verse 15, verse uh, uh, 17, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. And one thing you have to know is for the original listeners, the opposing armies and the nations around them were much mightier than they, okay? Little old Israel looking at all of the big armies and the big uh, uh, nations that surrounded them, very, very scary for them. But you and I, just read those two verses and then ask yourself, who's much mightier than you? Or what that you're facing is much mightier than you? What forces are arrayed against you, causing you to despair or fear? What are they? Or who are they? We all have them. They may not be a nation, maybe a person, maybe a, maybe a group, maybe just a situation or, or, or a state of being. But God says, those things are like a drop from a bucket to me. Verse uh, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Uh, what, what do you think when you're out mowing the grass, you finish the grass, and you discover that you've run over a couple of fire ant piles? Well, if you're like me, you get a real giddy look on your face, get really excited, and I go get my, um, well, my fire ant killer that I get from Mr. Doty, which I love because I, I, I get it in a little measuring cup, and then I just go out there and pour it all over the, the uh the uh, pile, and then I watch them run for cover. But they can't cover because as soon as they touch it, they die. It's great. That's how sick I am. Okay? But I thought about that just in relationship to God saying, it is he who, who sits, or Isaiah, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, I've never been to space, but the pictures taken from space must make the astronauts feel so small, right? Looking at the earth from out there. And Isaiah says, God looks on the earth and the inhabitants, the people, the billions of people running around on the earth are like grasshoppers to him. Not to say he's out trying to smite us or anything like I am with the fire ants, but just in terms of the size that's what I want you to understand. Me over the fire ant pile with all those little ants. You think they look up at me and think, oh, my gosh, we're in for it now? Well, I, don't, I don't know. But the point is, 
they're really small, I'm really big. Uh, the feeling I got climbing up Mount Rainier or, or climbing on the mountains in North Carolina is you get to a spot and you, 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 you look out over a clearing and you're just blown away at how big everything is and how small you are. The world dwarfs us all, but God dwarfs the world. Verse 23 says, God, God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, uh, you and I may not feel this way living in the United States. We're very blessed on a lot of different fronts, but God is not impressed with nor frightened by the ruler of North Korea or Assad in Syria or for our friends down in Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega. Do you think the global financial elites run the world? Do you think God is threatened by Jeff Bezos? That's the CEO of Amazon, which, by the way, is taking over the world. <laughs> Man, they're getting into all kinds of stuff. It's pretty scary. But God's not scared by any of that. So I just found myself thinking of some of the things that, that I've read recently about the way technology is changing how we do life. And I, in the pit of my stomach, I do get a little bit... Ooh, man, that's kind of scary. And yet, I was reminded this week, he's not threatened by any of that. Lastly, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Let me ask you this. How many PhDs spend their entire lifetime researching the cosmos and various constellations. How many? Hundreds, thousands, thousands of hours, thousands of pages of reading and research they write. And God knows all of them by name. He knows exactly which ones belong where, and he has ensured that nothing is missing. That should blow your mind. The vastness and lack of measurability of the universe is a testimony to the designer. And see, so much of the prophet's work was rebuking the people for their idolatry, their, their fashioning of images that they could keep in their homes that made sense to them, an image that could be captured. And he talks about that in Isaiah 40 as well. But the problem was they were taking it upon themselves to define God. And the God of the Bible says to us, says to you and to me, you can't define me. I tell you who I am. I reveal myself. I disclose my personality traits. And at the end of Isaiah 40, he says, The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, listen, the God of the pagan nations were gods made in the image of the people. So the people needed rain gods, fertility gods, food gods, and so forth. So if you go to a museum today and you look at ancient artifacts, the, the gods and goddesses looked like the people of the culture that had fashioned them. So sometimes they were superhuman forms, uh, but, but they, were, they were made. Get that, they were made. On the other end of the spectrum, though, is a worldview like Islam. The God of Islam, Allah, is, is so far removed from the world and humanity that, that he's, he's really unknowable. He's moody, he's capricious, you don't really ever know where you stand with him, and so you don't know if you've ever done enough. And yet, this God, we confess, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty. This God is personal. This one Isaiah describes is a person, meaning he's knowable. You can't have a relationship with someone you don't know. And you can't know inanimate objects in the same way you can know another human being. Let's just say that again. You can know the God of the universe personally. You can know the God of the universe personally. Now, when you say about another person, yeah, I know them, you might mean you know about them, or you might mean they're a casual acquaintance, right? Or you might mean, if you say, yeah, I know them, you know their life story, you know what makes them tick, you know their likes, their dislikes, you know the longings of their heart. In other words, your knowledge might be minimal or it might be quite deep and significant, but either way, the, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. We, we know another person. You can only get so far, right? The other person has to open themselves up. We know another person. We, we say, well, we might say, I know them not very well. I know them just to shake hands with. That's how most of us know one another here, let's be honest. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I'll see you next Sunday. That's what we're thinking. We don't actually say that. It'd be a little more honest if we said, have a good week, see you next Sunday. We might know, when we say we know another person, we might mean intimately. We might know perhaps inside out, according to how much or how little they've opened up to us. You can open up to them, but you can't force them to open up to you. It's easy to make sense of that when you think of a peer, but think, though, about being introduced to someone who's above you, okay? More significant than you, higher in the social food chain than you. And for argument's sake, think of meeting the queen of England, all right? Think of, think of meeting her. You might desire to get to know her, but you realize that's entirely dependent on her moving toward you, Right? That you, if the sum total of your conversation is, nice to meet you, thank you for coming to visit, if you even got that out of her, I'd be shocked, right? But if you got that out of her, you wouldn't complain, you wouldn't get mad because you thought she owed you more, right? You're just honored to be in the room with her. But, but what if instead of saying, nice to meet you, thank you for coming to visit, what if instead of that she sat down and she began to ask your opinion on world affairs, or she asked you for the meaning of life. What do you think the meaning of life is, right? Or she shared her deepest fears. You know, I'm getting old. Going to die soon. Really worried about Charles. Not that she would say that. But what if she sat down and she really started to open her heart to you? How, how humbled, how awestruck, how honored would you be? You'd be blown away. And here's the truth of Christianity and the reason that analogy works so well, I think. The king of the whole universe has personally revealed himself to us and spoken to us in the pages of the Bible. When you open the Bible, he is talking to you. And that's anything but small talk. So, again, I mentioned this last week, uh, dad's husbands, men, can you feel how life-giving and helpful reading the Bible every day is? Ladies, too, but I'm thinking of them as they, as they, uh, as they lead their, their families. All of us. 
if the God of the universe has personally said, I want to talk to you, and this is where you hear from him, he says, I'm personally going to move toward you to become your friend. You who are my enemy, I'm coming to you in grace. Here's the thing. We don't make friends with God. He moves to make friends with us. His knowing us implies a personal affection, a, a redeeming action, a covenant faithfulness, a care. His knowing us means salvation. Now, I can't say it better than this. I think it, we've got it on slide, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. This is a quote from uh, J.I. Packer. I think we have it. Yes, we do. Great. Thanks. Whoever's up there. Josh, whoever's up there doing slides, thank you. Um, this is a quote from J.I. Packer, and, and I was so, I, I was just blown away by this. I, I had to share it with you. So I'll read it as you follow along. And um, gosh, so good. What matters supremely is not that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies that knowledge, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eyes off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There's unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes. Be it said, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good, there's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. This is so good. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is, certainly, great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about that my fellow humans do not see. And I'm glad. And that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some strange reason, he wants me to be his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize that purpose. I, like I said, I, I couldn't have said it better or tried to. And if, uh, if, you, if you want that later, I can give it to you. But not only is he a personal God, and I know that was long, the next two are much shorter. Not because they're less important, but just because I knew that was long. He's not only a personal God, he's our tender father. The New Testament has some very radical things to say about the fact that God is our father. It's called the Christian doctrine of adoption. It's significant because we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. In Galatians 3, verse 26, the apostle says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The only way you become a son is by faith. But when you receive him, when you believe on him, go back to the, the uh, assurance of pardon. John says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You get the birthright. You get the inheritance. You become an heir to all he has. In the ancient world, 
this, this, is, this is pretty stunning. In the ancient world, adoption was a practice that was usually reserved for the well-to-do in a community who were childless, okay? And the subjects of adoption weren't infants like we're used to today. Uh, you adopted a young adult who had shown themselves already to be fit and able to carry on a family name. They, were, they, they had proven their worth, they had a good reputation, they had physical prowess, and that made them a strong candidate for adoption, okay? So a very different understanding they had in the ancient world of this idea than, than we do or the, how we typically think of it today. But the Bible is telling us God adopts out of free love, not because of the character and record of us that show us worthy to carry on his name, but despite the fact they show just the opposite. We're not qualified for a place in God's family. In fact, the idea of his loving and exalting sinners as he loves and exalted the Lord Jesus sounds pretty ludicrous, actually. Let, let me say that again. The idea of his loving and exalting sinners in the same way that he loves and exalts his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sounds pretty ludicrous. It sounds crazy. And yet that's what we mean by God our Father. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, some of you know it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called what? The children of God. And that is what we are. God is in the business of taking his enemies and turning them into his children. There will not be one person in heaven who cannot say to another person in heaven, Hey, former enemy, what's it like to be a child now? Because everyone in heaven is a former enemy that God has turned into his child. And like we said last week, faith is a gift. You don't, you don't, get, to, you don't get a say, you don't get a choice into which family you're born. Your birth is a, is a gift, and so is the so-called new birth. It's God's work. Now, there's two things that make it possible for somebody to be a, a child of God. One is a formal sense, one is a, a family sense. The formal sense says God is a judge, God's declaration of someone that, uh, the Bible refers to it as, as justification. It's God's declara declaration of someone that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. It's a free gift. It gives us acquittal. It gives us peace. But there's not necessarily an intimacy or an affection that's implied there but the New Testament says not only is that true, but God becomes your father too. In this sense, he takes you into his family. He establishes you as his child. There's closeness, there's affection, there's generosity. Uh, to quote J.I. Packer again, he says, To be right with God as judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Now, if you, if you look at the insert in your worship folder, you'll notice the third and the fourth passages that Vicki read, one from Romans, one from Galatians. Now, see what they have in common as it relates to adoption. To be a servant is to be enslaved. It's to be under the law. It's to be full of fear. But both these passages tell us to be a son is to be free, redeemed from under the law, to call the God of Isaiah chapter 40, to call, to call that God that Isaiah 40 is describing, Dad. Did you hear that? 
to call that same God described in Isaiah 40, dad. He's a tender father. He gathers lambs in his arms. He gently leads his flock. He, he dwells with the lowly. He dwells with those who are struggling, those who are hurting. He raises the poor from the ash heap. That's in our call to worship from Psalm 113. The ash heap was most likely referring to the trash pile. He's concerned for the barren woman with no future and visits her with children. He's a tender father. The nations are a drop in the bucket, and he's a tender father. Uh, Henry Light, who was an English hymn writer from the 1900s, most famous for the hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Some of you may be familiar with that one. His father left the family when he was in elementary school, and he sent he and his brother off to boarding school. And after his father remarried, he wouldn't allow Henry or his brother to call him father anymore. In fact, he signed his letters to Henry, your uncle. Now imagine that. Imagine the pain of that. Well, later when Lyle was converted to Christianity, the fatherhood of God became a source of great comfort and great peace for him. The gospel, God's adoption of us into his family because of the work of Jesus Christ, rewrote Henry Light's life. And no matter what your experience of earthly fathers, Christianity uniquely says God himself adopts you, making you a son when you believe in the son, the Lord Jesus in fact, some have said, if you want to assess how well a person understands and lives out Christianity, find out how much or how often they take thought of being God's child, of having God as their father. Is that the thing that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook on life? If, if shameless commercial, if you've not read or been through a praying life, let me encourage you, go buy the book. Next time we do the seminar, come. Because... It helps you with that very thing. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be bigger than our grasp of adoption. But here's the thing, and here's where I want to finish. We can't say, I believe in God the Almighty, or I believe in the Father Almighty. It has to be both. So to stake your life on confessing this piece of the creed demands what I heard referred to a couple of weeks ago as the both-andness of God. And that's where I want to end uh, briefly. Our only hope, our only hope is the both andness of God. We can't have just God or just Father. He has to be both. Without both the justice of God, the high and holy one, the one who, is, who inhabits eternity, who must punish sin, and without the mercy and tenderness of our Father, the compassionate and merciful and long-suffering one, you don't have Christianity. And in Jesus Christ, God's justice and his mercy meet. See, on the cross, God put, God put the cross up as a billboard saying, this is what I think of sin. It's, a, it's the wrath of God against sin. This is what I think of it. And yet at the same time, the cross is a billboard for the love of God for sinners I don't want you to be up there, so I put my son there instead of you. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty is to say, I believe God knows me. I believe he cares for me. I believe his heart is set on me. 
And there's an absolute stability and security because I am his and he is mine. In fact, one of the greatest assurances for your heart, if you're a Christian, when you deal with doubt and unbelief, is to remind yourself of words like the ones printed in the insert from Romans 8, from Galatians 4, is to remind yourself of your adoption, that he is my God, my Lord. Jesus said that after the resurrection. Go tell my, not disciples, my brothers that I have risen and I'm on my way back to my God and their God, my Lord and their Lord. He's made it possible for us to join the family. Do you realize the personal God of the universe and the tender father of all mercies has his eye on you if you're in Christ Jesus? Let me, let me end with uh, a catechism question. <laughs> But this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, a catechism written many, many hundred years, hundreds of years ago. And it's uh, a reflection on the Apostles' Creed. It's question 26. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty? And here's the answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is my God and Father because of Christ, his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he's a faithful father. Let's pray to this one who is both and our only hope. Uh, Our father in heaven, our father who inhabits eternity, uh, our Father, who, for whom the nations are a drop in the bucket, and at the same time you know the number of hairs on our head. We simply just sit in awe that you are both of those. And grateful that in order for Christianity to be true, you have to be both of those. Father, thank you that you put Jesus on the cross instead of us. Thank you that he had to be put there to satisfy your justice, that sin can't not be punished and accounted for. The debt of our rebellion had to be paid somehow. And thank you that instead of us, it was him. And so we acknowledge and worship you for your power But we also acknowledge and worship you for the fact that you allow us to know you. You reveal yourself to us and you say, come and be a part of my family. What manner of love you've given to us that we should be called your children. Help us to live in light of that and share that glorious news with those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As you go, receive these words. They are the words that whatever you're facing, whatever you go to, uh, he goes with you. Uh, he is all-powerful and all-good at the same time. The one who counts the stars, knows the name of every constellation, knows the amount of hairs on every single one of our individual heads. Uh, it should be mind-blowing to you. Um, but as you go, these words should be a great comfort to you in the middle of trying to figure all that out as well as trying to figure out whatever it is you're facing. No, he's with you. Uh, and he longs to do good to you. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.